0: I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking to Stefan Erich about his new book, Ataturk in the Nazi Imagination. This book was released by Harvard University Press in 2014. Erich's book shows how the German far-right and later Nazi party looked at Ataturk's Turkey as a model of resistance against the Western powers and punitive Versailles Treaty. In Turkey, Nazi elites saw lessons for Germany's future from armed guerrilla warfare against the Etan to the ethnic cleansing of so-called undesirable populations, such as Armenians and Greeks. In Ataturk, Hitler and his followers saw a Turkish Führer that would lead the ailing sick man of Europe to modern statehood and national rebirth. I hope you have a chance to pick up Ataturk and the Nazi Imagination especially if you're interested in the political discourse of Nazi Germany or have an interest in the making of the modern Middle East. The Nazi treatment of Turkey is an intriguing exception to Orientalism. Rather than confined as eternally backward or unchanging, Turkey becomes a vision of modernity and resistance, not only to be praised, but to be emulated by Germany. It was a pleasure to talk to Stefan, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello. Today we will be speaking with Stefan Erich, author of Ataturk and the Nazi Imagination. Stefan, before we begin with the text, I want to ask you some questions. First, how did you decide to become a historian and what brought you to the study of
1: modern Turkey and in the Third Reich in particular? Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Um, um, I was interested in German history um, uh, long before I started uh, studying history at university. Um, The Third Reich is always something very uh, crucial to to German history and German identity, of course. Um, I was also very interested in um, uh, the minorities in Germany, Turks in Germany. And so I went on to study as a minor um, Turkish studies in Berlin. And um, actually from there I found out about the... You know a lack of knowledge of many of the connections between Turkey and the Third Reich, and that kind of what got me started uh, on the topic
0: okay yeah I mean it's interesting in in the um the uh beginning of your book you talk about this sort of interesting inversion of so you know in in contemporary Germany that uh, Turkish immigration has become sort of a problem of of trying to immigrate uh, and integrate them into german society but also sort of keep a german identity that sort of uh has continuity and it's interesting how in your book you talk about um a lot of the those who grew up in the 1930s and 1940s had a lot of um suspicion of turks not because they were alien but because they saw similar traits in sort of modern turkey and in you know a. uh and in Nazi Germany. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, in general, there's a certain um, perceived proximity that goes beyond, actually, what I'm discussing in my book. Um, the German Empire, already before the First World War, was uh, closely aligned to the Ottoman Empire, and there's this whole idea that um, in contrast to other European powers, German uh, relations with the Orient were kind of inverse to what the other countries were doing, namely what is otherwise described as Orientalism, didn't really apply when it came to Germany and the Turks. Um, already before the First World War, there was this tradition to actually see oneself in the Turks and kind of um, ascribe to the Turks all these German characteristics and uh, qualities. But now after World War One, this took a totally different uh, turn. and um, which we will be discussing today uh, is also very um, much founded on the uh, political uh, situation uh, after World War One, but there is a larger, bigger German uh, tradition to this uh, uh, perceived proximity or uh, parallel uh, Turk to the German.
0: Yeah, I, one thing that I thought was interesting, coming from uh, an education in sort of modern Britain and empire, is that many of the things that the German imperial Germany saw in uh Ottoman Turkey were sort of the same ideas that Britain found in Greece. So it's interesting how, how that, you know, Germany was on the side of the central powers in the First World War and they saw their their ally in Turkish culture and, and Turkish identity while Britain sort of had a more... Um, sort of more classical Greek-focused kind of looking back to the sort of great ancient Greece. And it was an interesting parallelism, and it it was interesting how how much it was based in sort of contemporary politics. Um, Like you said that in in your monograph, you talk about the striking lack of Orientalism of Germans towards Turkey. And it, it, it seems so strange to me as a historian of empire to be that way, but it's also fascinating. At the same time. Um, I think from that we should segue into your first chapter, uh, Turkish Lessons for Germany, The Turkish War of Independence as Weimar Media Event 1919 to 1923. Um, could you talk us talk us through this chapter a little bit? Um, it, it was very interesting, especially the, the focus on the right wing press in Germany covering uh, Ataturk. Against the, uh, the Aten and the Greek army as a sort of guerrilla hero, nationalist, uh,
1: yeah. Please, please talk about the chapter. I think the first thing to bear in mind or actually to try to, um, um, is to, uh, to get a feeling for the, the, the period and what people, what kind of state people in Germany were in. They came out of the war which until the end, uh, the German propaganda suggested they were winning, and all of a sudden they lost, and they lost really everything. They lost the empire, the emperor, a new political system was instituted, there were revolutions to fend off, there was great confusion and depression, and especially uh, something you could characterize as some sort of national trauma. And Germany was waiting for a very punitive uh, peace treaty, they were sure of it from the beginning, and they felt very... Um, powerless and they didn't feel that their new democratically uh, elected uh, politicians were doing a good job in representing the nation in these negotiations and also in what follows afterwards. So this is kind of a very dark uh, uh, these are very dark times especially for nationally minded um, uh, Germans and newspaper commentators and it's in this darkness <clears throat> that Turkey emerges as some sort of eastern light uh, guiding nationalists uh, in Europe uh, towards something better. It's especially in these days when in Paris uh, the Treaty of Versailles is debated and then also uh, is proposed uh, to Germany and is accepted by Germany that uh, Mustafa Kemal, later called Ataturk, um, is first mentioned in the German newspapers and uh, there you have somebody defying the Entente dictate from Paris, um, not via politically, uh, political or diplomatic means, but with weapon in hand, as they always wrote. And um, this is the beginning of a fascination with Mustafa Kemal and his Kemalists fighting against all various armies, the Entente armies, actually for some brief time, the Ottoman army and especially the Greek army landing in Western Anatolia kind of as the proxies of the Entente powers. And um, for the nationalist German newspapers, this is in stark contrast to what they're seeing at home. You know, this powerlessness of a great nation and the Turks who have been fighting wars already since the Balkan Wars or since the Itali- Italian-Turkish war over Libya. Um the Turks who have been in continuous warfare for a decade already, who are totally exhausted, have no resources left, and still are fighting the Entente. And as time progresses towards the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923, um, the Turks are even successful. And for German nationalists, this is really like something like hyper-nationalist pornography, pornography being played out in the newspapers on the front page day after day for years. And um it is really what I try to uh, get across in in my book, it's really a media event, uh, news from Turkey and from the Kemalists fighting in Anatolia against the Greeks, especially I uh, front page news are discussed in the same language and discourses as German politics, national politics would be discussed, and they're often integrated in these national domestic topics on a daily basis. And if you just look at the coverage, at the amount of coverage, it's unprecedented and and never to be reached uh, in the next hundred years. Even something like debates over EU membership uh, of Turkey never reached such a quantity of uh, front-page coverage as as this event in the early 1920s did. Yeah, it is really interesting. Uh, You
0: have some great uh, visual culture... um, uh images from some of the right-wing press and and it it's so apocalyptic it, there there there's like you said there there is this sort of sense that the world is sort of ending for Germany that they lost so so quickly so rapidly and and so completely but in another sense the the Turks refused to give up in a, a certain way and I think for the the right-wing press especially it was it was um Interesting for them to see Germany as a modern industrial nation with all these resources, uh, being sort of sucked dry by the, the Etant. There's this great, uh, uh, image in your book, um, from one of the papers with, uh, Clemenceau as a vampire, kind of sucking the blood of, of the sort of made in Germany. This kind of, uh, uh, sensationalist, one might say, uh, a coverage of the event. Um, I think it's it's it's important to note that with Turkey especially, it, it it's interesting of because of their semi-colonized status, it, it seems that their resistance to uh, the Western powers is even more of an invitation for German nationalists to, uh, uh, you know, rebel against the Treaty of Versailles to have a sort of their own armed insurgency against the French and the British and the Americans. Um, It's it's also interesting in your text. You talk about Turkish lessons. Can you talk about this idea of of of the lessons Germany can learn uh, that, that they're sort of reading in the right wing press?
1: So, as you said, um, what's taking place in Anatolia, what the Kemalists are doing, looked not only amazing and fascinating to the Germanists, uh, German nationalists, but really incredible. And this contrast between a strong German industrialized nation with uh, great resources, uh, with the Turks, uh, you know, exhausted by continuous warfare, This uh, contrast led to a lot of debates and uh, discussion of this Turkish model, if it was a a model at all. And um, especially the far-right papers, they discussed how such uh, Turkish lessons uh, could be applied to Germany and what these lessons could be. And um, it's very interesting that especially a Nazi paper, the Heimatland, took um, a leading role in this discussion of the uh, Turkish lessons and um they had one uh german who had served actually with the kemalists um the only foreigner serving with the kemalist forces um who wrote a large exposé many articles on uh the turkish role model and he um he crystallized three major lessons out of the whole thing for germany one was an organization of the army as a um uh, one of volunteers The second one uh, was the cleansing of the country of the minorities, here referring obviously not only um, to the Armenian genocide and also the expulsion of Greeks in Anatolia, but uh, um, also implicitly referencing uh, what German nationalists perceived to be their own minority problem, the Jewish question. And um, the third lesson was a strong uh, leader figure, which at this time wasn't necessarily uh, immediately Hitler himself, but it was important that a leader to, was to be found uh, that united all the German nationalist forces and that uh, then uh, in the struggle for German uh, independence, uh, this leader would be unquestionably followed by uh, Germany. So uh, these, you know, the minorities and the, the leader uh, the role of a leader, of a national leader, these are very important uh, Turkish lessons as the Nazis and the nationalists discussed them. Yeah,
0: um, in this chapter, you talk about this, the idea that is crystallizing in the early 20s, in the far right of this I, this dichotomy between active politics and passive politics. Passive politics being uh, negotiation, uh, cooperation, uh Mutual security and active politics being this sort of uh, dictatorial, authoritarian, uh, direct action, sort of guerrilla fighter militia uh, lessons that are sort of learned from the Turkish um, insurgency against against the uh, Etan. Um I think this might be a good place to talk about your second cha- chapter, Ankara in Munich, because you were saying that. Uh, this idea of the sort of Fuhrer principle, the leader principle comes out of out of Turkey. But in this chapter you also talk about how uh, Munich is chosen uh, like Ankara as being sort of the heartland of uh, German nationalism or of, of Turkish nationalism, far from the uh, cosmopolitan
1: areas of Constantinople or Berlin. Yeah, there's a, a whole set of um, operative political um, oppositions uh, that these discourses uh, construct. You mentioned active-passive. For others, it's this idea, is it uh, democracy, the rule of the many, or is it the rule of the one? Um, they're, they're talking about that only men, strong men, make history, and that democracy is simply not able to, to achieve any greatness for a nation or even any feasible solutions. And on the other hand, it's this opposition between Ankara and Constantinople transferred back to Germany, Munich and Berlin. Munich was naturally already in these years, um, a focal point of nationalism, German nationalism in opposition to Berlin. And there were great expectations, not only from the nationalists in Munich, but also from the Bavarian state and the Bavarian army to take a leading role in this, uh, um, in, in freeing Germany. And um Mustafa Kemal, what he did, what is so special about this concept of Ankara is that uh, with his nationalist forces far away from Constantinople, he set up an alternative seat of government, basically, and started organizing a new country, even though there was still the old seat of government, but which, of course, in their view, was corrupted and uh, um, under the boot of the Entente powers. And uh, German nationalists construed a similar situation for Germany and so um um actually um the the hitler putsch uh, the the beer seller putsch of late 1923 uh, can also be viewed in this Ankara perspective it was this attempt to um free one part of germany bavaria and especially munich and to establish a quasi oppositional government to the corrupt one in berlin and if you look at, um, the proceedings and also at the trial later on, this is clearly the focus, uh, of the, of the attempt, uh, by the Nazis in Munich in this putsch. And it's less, much less actually, uh, Mussolini's march on Rome, uh, than Mustafa Kemal's example actually, uh, that was being followed there because something that the later Italian, uh, Nazi, uh, access kind of overshadows is that the March on Rome was actually not a violent counter coup, but Mussolini was actually invited into government. There was pressure by fascist paramilitary forces, but it wasn't a violent seizure of power. It wasn't uh, uh, like uh, what the Nazis had planned for Munich. So actually, um, I mentioned this series of uh, articles um, focusing on Turkish lessons uh, in this uh, Nazi paper, this was just weeks before the Hitler Putsch, and actually uh, the issues leading up to the Hitler Putsch in this paper discussed direct li- directly this Ankara solution for Germany and Ankara in Munich. So I think that's a very interesting and new dimension to this uh, early Nazi history, this import uh, and uh, interpretation of uh, Turkish history for Germany.
0: Yeah, I thought it was fascinating that you did mention Mussolini many times, but it seems at, at almost every juncture the resemblance or, as you call it, twinning of, of uh, Kemalist uh, Turkey and Nazi Germany is, is, is overshadowed. It, it, it's interesting uh, that Italy is, is similar but not definitely not the, the foregrounded theme. Why do you think that that uh, the far right saw more of themselves in Ataturk than in Mussolini?
1: Um, I lost you there. Could you uh, could you please repeat the last?
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Um, why do you think that the German far right saw more of, more resemblance in Ataturk than in Mussolini?
1: Well, the thing is. Um, there's, of course, many, many phases to Nazi uh, history and to Nazi political thought. Um, One thing we have to remember is that um, the German nationalist papers in general, they had already been discussing uh, Mustafa Kemal for a few years in depth before they started really discussing uh, Mussolini and his fascists as well. And then, of course, also, just uh, just as was the case for Turkey, there were also debates how applicable is the Italian model uh, to German uh, conditions and to the German situation and I would argue that until the failed Hitler putsch, that the German far right uh, thought that the Turkish model was more applicable to Germany Italy not being a, u- uh, a loser of the first world war for example and uh, different political cons- uh, constellations but after the Hitler putsch failed Mussolini's example becomes much more important because um Mussolini was able basically to gain power from within the system, and um, after the Hitler Putsch failed, uh, the Nazis uh, uh, realized that they too have to adopt what they call uh, legal uh, tactics to gain power in Germany as well. And then of course, as time progresses, the fascist system is installed in Italy and produces many interesting uh, results. And uh, it becomes more important for the Nazis. And, of course, uh, the reality of the new Turkish Republic and of Kemalism in uh, politics and in practice differs in many respects to what the Nazis were aspiring to, which doesn't mean that the Nazis started criticizing Turkey afterwards, not at all, actually. But um, I think that uh, fascist Italy was much more useful after 1923 for the Nazis in many respects. And then, of course, you know, after the Spanish Civil War, we actually have an alignment of these two countries, actually, an alignment that Germany never achieves with Turkey, even though they try uh, throughout the war.
0: Okay. Um, also, one of the things in this book that I thought fascinating was the the Nazi elite, with with their sort of exchanges with Turkey. You mentioned at a, one point that Himmler considers... Uh, early in his career to, uh, abandon Germany and go to Kemalist, uh, Turkey. Later on, you talk about, um, other sort of exchanges, cultural exchange, uh, visits to Constantinople, I mean, or rather Ankara by, uh, Ernst Rome of the essay. Do you think you could talk a little bit about, um, the Nazi elite visiting Germany, or visiting Turkey and what they gathered from it, um, and what they learned from the experience?
1: Well, that's actually very interesting. We don't know much about Ans uh, Röhm's visit. We know that he went to uh, Rome and then to Ankara, kind of like a pilgrimage, going uh, to his idols or role models, you know, Mussolini and Ataturk. But we actually don't know much about these visits. Similarly, um, Goebbels later also visits uh, Turkey, and uh, we don't know too much about these visits. One reason is, of course, that later on uh, uh, these Associations with the Nazis were very uncomfortable for the uh, Turkish leadership and also, of course, as long as Ataturk was alive, he was very uh, uh, reserved when it came to the Nazis and was in many respects very critical of the Nazis and their program. So um, whatever fascinations the Nazis had for Turkey, the, the cult uh, the Nazis uh, uh, established in the Third Reich around Ataturk and the New Turkey... Was not mirrored by Turkey itself by Kemalism and uh, definitely not by Atatürk himself. So it was very much a one-sided uh, love affair, you could say. And um, the book is mainly about the Nazi imagination, as the title uh, already says. It's not really about the um, political realities of Turkey uh, in the end. I see.
0: Yes. No. That that that is uh,
1: that is a good point.
0: I think this might be a good. Um, section to move to chapter 3 and talk about Hitler's star in darkness, Nazi admiration for new Turkey. Do you think you could talk about this chapter, and and in particular uh, Hitler's sort of mentalities with uh, uh, Turkey? Up till this point, we sort of talk about um, uh, Nazi discourse, or far-right discourse, or sort of the range of elites interested in Turkey, but there is not so much about Hitler's interest in Atatürk himself.
1: Yeah, um, Hitler, at, at various points in his career, referred directly to Atatürk as a role model. I think one of the most important instances is during the Hitler trial, where he actually connects his endeavor to take power in Germany to uh, the discussion is about uh, committing high treason against the German state, and he points to Ataturk's example, um, which uh, justifies such extreme measures when you want to save the nation. Um, that is very interesting, and there's many, there are many other remarks where Hitler references his own role or his own thought to Ataturk. But um, now coming to the Third Reich, I think it's very interesting to see how... <clears throat> After the failed Hitler Putsch, the Turkish example, the Turkish role model is something rather, uh, the Nazis rather keep to themselves. And uh, Hitler actually stops talking about Atatürk in public for a while. Also because, of course, uh, Atatürk's example is associated with violence, with uh, perhaps civil war, with uh, coming to power uh, um, against the state illegally. Um, but once the Nazis are in power in 1933, The discourse changes back again, and Hitler references Atatürk again as his role model. And one of the uh, interesting um, events in uh, 1933 is an uh, interview with the Turkish uh, newspaper, which is summarized on the front page of the Nazi newspapers, where uh, Hitler describes Atatürk as his shining star in the darkness of the 20s. And this is indeed then in the Third Reich, and the the press ministry, the propaganda ministry uh, of Goebbels, uh, re uh, reaffirms this uh, in the Third Reich. Um, this is the official line of the Third Reich when it comes to Ataturk and the New Turkey, the shining star in the darkness.
0: This chapter is interesting as well because there's a lot of uh, material culture aspects to it. Uh, you mentioned you has know, interesting photography of this, of uh, Hitler's uh, sculptor making busts of him and Ataturk uh, sort of Again, twinning as, as you'd call it. Um, do you think that there was a, an, an interest in Turkey, not just from a political, uh, a concrete political, uh, achievements, but a uh, kind of cultural achievements as well at this time? Sort of, um, the Turkish modernizing project being faster because it's, it's in, uh, uh, the Middle East
1: rather than being in sort of central Europe? I think as a a, a general perspective on these developments and these discourses, we have to remember again, um, you know, the old systems are gone, you know, democracy was instituted, and now these other regimes like fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and in their view also Kemalist Turkey, try to do something different. It's like kind of a a third or a fourth way, even, because Bolshevism exists, of course, as well in these times, and is a constant uh, companion in all political debates. Now, the Nazis are looking at the new Turkey that Ataturk is building, and they have been looking at it already for uh, over 10 years, uh, uh, once the Third Reich uh, is in state, uh, uh, is, uh, begins. And uh, what they see is this kind of fusion of uh, nationalism and a new political system under a strong leader. And uh, in the Nazi discourse, this, uh, this exists as a total glorification of all achievements of the new Turkey. It's it's quite fascinating to read these uh, um, newspaper articles and books from the Third Reich, where almost everything is praised, um, like the construction of new cities, the, the reinvention of Uh, the the Turkish nation and national spirit, culture, all these different aspects of society. Of course, um, there are other aspects of modern Turkey that are simply ignored in these uh, discourses. For example, the emancipation of women is a little bit difficult for Nazi discourse. The situation of the farmers in the nation is a little bit different too. Youth culture, there's no youth movement like in the Third Reich or in Italy. So that's something that they uh, choose to ignore and so on. Um, Religion, for example, would be another topic where it is very difficult for the Nazis to openly praise what uh, Ataturk did with uh, in relation to um, Islam and political Islam. Because um, already since the 1920s and even before, there was this tendency to uh, twin also Islam and um, Catholic Christianity. A, um, a supranational institution, uh, often in conflict with national interests, alien to the national spirit and, and such. And you find these things also in Nazi discourses and sometimes you find an open open praise for um, Atatürk secularization and breaking, <coughs> breaking um, <coughs> the political and societal power of established religion. But this is, of course, very dangerous and you find much more in Hitler's table talks than in uh, the printed press because it's uh, almost too radical uh, to openly praise. But it's a very interesting picture and what emerges is a new Turkey that's vibrant, energetic and uh, ahead even of Germany when it comes to what they call national reconstruction. And uh, 1933, the year Hitler comes to power, is also the 10th anniversary of the Turkish Republic. And you have newspaper articles and speeches where German politicians actually say this, that uh, Turkey is way ahead uh, on this new path of national reawakening, reconstruction, and that Germany now has to follow uh, in, Turkey, in Turkey's footsteps. Yes,
0: yes. No, that, that was really interesting, um, especially the, the idea of Islam as, as twin to Catholicism. Uh, you talk about how uh, the discourses in Nazi Germany about Catholicism as being a sort of uh, an entity that holds Europe back and specifically Germany back. Um, yeah. So so as much as as that was written, did did they um, speak at any length about that or, or or as you said, did they try to avoid Islam as an as a entity to sort of discuss in detail?
1: Um, they did discuss Islam, of course, and uh, during World War II, it also becomes uh, very uh, important in you know uh, in the war effort and uh, strategic alliances and such. But um, when it comes to Turkey and the New Turkey and Ataturk, most the most important thing is secularization and breaking the power of the established churches. Uh, and in this context. Um public discourse, let's say, in the major newspapers is very careful not to overstate the example. But, for example, in uh, Hitler's table talks, he comments on how uh, Mussolini and also Franco in Spain should take uh, Atatürk's role model more seriously and uh, should do the same uh, with their Catholic clergy as what Atatürk allegedly did with the uh, Muslim clergy at home. So there is this idea that uh, s- some more radical solution to the church question uh, would be in store in the future, but of course uh, the Nazi regime didn't live long enough to take a- another step in this direction.
0: Uh, oftentimes in your book, and, and this is this is starting from the very beginning, uh, where uh, sort of problematically for uh, far-right discourse that uh, editor-courts, uh, the Soviet Union at times for assistance, but also for security. How how do the Nazis sort of resolve this this problem on one side Ataturk is at a at points seemingly supportive of the Soviet Union, but at the same time Bolshevism is the anathema of Nazi
1: ideals. How is this resolved, or is this not resolved in at all? Well, um, in the early 1920s, when this is a, a big discussion, actually, or in 1919, actually, already, um, this is a source for a lot of, of a lot of confusion in the far right uh, press, in the nationalist press in general in Germany. Um, some even, at least for a few weeks, think that the Kemalists are even Bolshevists or some new kind of hybrid between nationalism and Bolshevism. But very quickly, and the Nazi papers themselves uh, take a very um, firm stand on this, very quickly they say, oh, um, the Turks are only using the Bolsheviks against the Western uh, uh, powers, against the Entente, and um, as time uh, progresses, they're actually saying this is a a possible solution uh, to temporarily align oneself with the Bolsheviks against the Western uh, uh, powers. And um, then in the Third Reich, when these things, Turkish modern history or the history of the new Turkey, of the Kemalists and their struggle, when all this is debated again and narrated again, uh, this is an even stronger feature uh, to kind of say um, what the Kemalists did is okay. And is especially okay because they, from the beginning, um, fended off any attempts to install communist politics or a communist party in Anatolia, and uh, Kemalism, this new kind of Turkish nationalism, was never contaminated with uh, communist ideas. And in this respect, uh, when these texts discuss this uh, temporary alliance, they actually a little bit also prepare the groundwork for the uh, later alliance, the temporary alliance between the Nazis and the Soviet Union, of course.
0: Yes, I I, I thought that was an inter- another interesting twinning eventually, uh, because of, of, uh, politics as, as they were in the 1930s, the Nazis do have to make some sort of deal with the, with their devil, the, the Soviet Union. And I, I think it is interesting that they both had to make that choice at a certain point. Um, I think this would be a good time to segue in, into chapter four, the Turkish Fuhrer, Nazi hagiography and national education. In this chapter, you talk a lot about All the books written about Ataturk in Germany at one point you mentioned that uh, aside from Turkey itself Germany has more uh, biographies of Ataturk than any other country at this time
1: yes indeed Um, this goes back again to the early 1920s and this debate between um, you know the the rule of the many or the rule of the one which is uh, the model uh, for the German nation for the future, this um, kind of obsession with leadership in politics. And um, often these um, descriptions of Ataturk as the the national leader, they're also mirrored in discussions of other national leaders. uh, One of his... Uh, German biographies is published in a series where they also have books on uh, Mussolini or on Piłsudski from Poland and other national figures. But what is interesting is that in all these Führer biographies uh, or narratives that um, Mustafa Kemal is presented as the kind of original post-war Führer, like the original of the new kind of Führer uh, in this new age as they all uh, describe it. And um, it's very interesting that uh, these books and also newspaper articles, especially when Ataturk dies in 1938, um, that they make this kind of, uh, that they open up this genealogy kind of of, uh, modern post-World War I uh, uh, führers and leaders. And it's always Ataturk who is the first, and then perhaps Hitler and Mussolini following in his uh, footsteps. Um, but of course, these narratives, these biographies or bio- biographical texts in the newspapers or other where they also serve a very distinct purpose. They kind of try to show the German nation, um, that it pays off to, f- to follow the Führer without questions until the end, um, given that Ataturk already freed the nation beyond any doubt in the Turkish War of Independence in the early 1920s. This is kind of a Führer story which already is blessed with a happy ending, uh, a happy ending that Germany and Italy too um, still have to attain somehow. So uh, this makes Ataturk's story into the perfect uh, Führer story, and this is the way he's discussed. And in this fashion, not only does he is he meant to prepare the German nation to follow the Fuhrer unquestionably. It's also meant to prepare the German nation for the coming war. War is central to all these narratives of the Turkish nation uh, and of the Turkish success and of Ataturk. And war is also presented as central for the attainment not only of freedom, of uh, real freedom for the German people, but also for this Inner kind of cleansing of the nation through war, the, the forged in war, and so on and so forth. So um, these narratives they fulfill a whole series of functions, and they're not just uh, echoes of uh, earlier, uh, um, I don't know, adulations of fan, uh, earlier fanhood. And I thought it was very interesting how uh, these narratives all, you know, uh, try to forge Germany into this. Uh, uh leadership following mass, you know, following Hitler into the next war that is uh, coming for certain.
0: Yes, yes, I, I noticed that as well, how these uh biographies and, and, and school books and, and all this media coming out on Turkey is is sort of laced with this narrative of of sacrifice. Sacrifice but also obedience, which is uh uh very interesting there's also this sort of idea that the reason why Atatürk was so successful and and this is sort of leaning into the to the next chapter as well but the reason why he was so successful was that the first world war allowed Turkey to uh banish or exterminate or destroy its internal enemies that were sort of weakening it weakening it, and allowing it to be uh, the sick, sick man of Europe. Uh, oftentimes in these uh, works on Turkey, there's this contention that the only thing that was sick about the Ottoman Empire was the sort of internal elements, the enemy within, uh, and that the Turks themselves were a strong, uh, brave, industrious people like the Germans. Could you could you talk a little bit about um, the sort of the role of Armenians as sort of an analog to Jews in Germany? Uh, it's a really
1: important and, and fascinating part of your book. Well, it's not only the Armenians though. Um, what Turkey? Um, represented for the Nazis and the far-right discourses uh, in these uh, years was like this double cleansing of ethnic minorities. One during World War One, in what we would describe today as a genocide of the Armenians and then after the war and after the war of independence uh, this uh, reset- resettlement agreement between Turkey and Greece which led to the expulsion of the uh, Greeks of uh, Western Anatolia. So um, the Turkey presented a whole variety of uh, ethnic engineering uh, policies, you could say, or tools. And uh, they were widely discussed already at the time, of course. And um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the Turkish lessons that were formulated in the early 1920s for Germany focused on ethnic and national purification, as they called it. So um one of the reasons it is possible for the Nazis to admire the new Turkey and all its various uh, achievements and accomplishments is also because in the Nazi view, this new Turkey was national, purely national and cleansed of all detrimental uh, minorities. Um, the Armenians are especially important because in the German discourses already going back before the Nazis and before World War I, the Armenians were often seen as parallel to the Jews of uh, Central Europe and um, German anti-Armenianism, as as you could call it, was like a carbon copy of uh, German, well, of European modern racial anti-Semitism. So um, discussing the purification of the new Turkey always also meant discussing um, the Jewish question in uh, Germany and in Europe. So they were very... uh, uh, intimately linked these topics and then that also means of course that the new Turkey as it's presented in Nazi discourse is also um, is also this vision of this post-genocidal ethnically cleansed country that can achieve the most miraculous and great things uh, one could imagine but of course this is a very distorted and one-sided discourse other minorities for example, the Kurds still exist in, in uh, um, Turkey, and there's a lot of conflict in the 1920s, especially, and also later on, with the Kurdish uh, population in Turkey, which the Nazis simply ignore in their discourses. They want to portray the new Turkey as ethnically homogeneous and cleansed, and so they ignore the Kurds, for example. They also ignore the um, Armenians and Greeks still living in uh, uh, Istanbul, for example. So, yes. as always, yeah. it's a very one-sided uh, perspective and discourse there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it, it was sort of uh, interesting uh, to encounter the Kurds in this, because, uh, of course, in Nazi discourse, they're they a non-entity, but in contemporary discourse on the Mideast, Kurds have, have been very important in, in the Syrian conflict, but also in Turkey in, in recent Years, I, I thought that was uh, an interesting inversion. Um, maybe we can talk about uh, the the idea that that um, there is a visual uh, aspect to this. There's this uh, interesting uh, part in chapter five where you talk about Heinrich Kaufmann's photography. Uh, he go he's a, a Hitler's photographer. And he his thing was sort of high modernism, taking pictures of factories and apartment blocks and these sorts of things. And he goes to, to Turkey and does the same thing there. He tries to capture uh, this embellished vision of a modern Turkey that the Nazis wanted to portray to their people. Um, what role do you think uh, showing uh, Turkey as this sort of uh, modern
1: state uh, played in uh, far-right discourse at this time? Well, we can't be entirely sure that Hoffman himself or an assistant of his uh, went to Turkey. But these pictures of these factories and new cities, boulevards and and such, they are part of the Hoffman collection. And um, the Hoffman collection is very interesting as um, some of the pictures which I reproduce in the book. They're, very, they're really iconic for the New Turkey and they're reproduced in uh, picture books, in uh, narrative histories of the New Turkey, in newspaper articles and such. And this, of course, is, is similar to all the other um, aspects of the Nazi discourse. It's a very focused or, you could say, distorted view of uh, the New Turkey. Of course, it focuses on the new achievement of this new kind of um, ethnic, folkish, national modernity that the Nazis uh, want to um Accomplish themselves and want to see and find in the new turkey and um it ignores of course the lack of infrastructure in other parts of Turkey and the the continuing old ways of life, architecture, and so on and social organization um, but what I thought is also interesting about these iconic pictures of the new turkey that most of the time there are no people in these uh, pictures it's just buildings, crude buildings um uh it's these are like empty uh, spaces to project whatever you know the nazis wanted to project upon them but of course there was this sense of shared um, um, of a sh- shared cultural and society uh, societal vocabulary that also expressed itself as you said in sculpture in architecture and many other things
0: well um i think we should uh try to get to the the last chapter and the epilogue um, second world war and the Turkish relationship. Well, after all this, this sort of admiring discourse, this sort of fawning over Ataturk and, and his legacy, ultimately, um, Nazi Germany doesn't really make a, a deal with uh, Turkey, at least to get
1: them into the Axis. Uh, why is that? Well, why? Why doesn't this occur? Well, there are many reasons, of course. I mean, as long as um, Atatürk is alive, uh, uh, he's, he's not a big fan of the Nazis at all. So he's rejecting any such alliances. Atatürk is much more focused on regional peace and regional uh, uh, systems. Um, I think it's, it's in this context, uh, we need to stress again that the book deals with the Nazi imagination. It doesn't really deal with the reality of the Turkish political system in the 1920s and 30s. And, um, it's interesting, really to note, I think, for example, that hit, uh, that Atatürk himself, um, in a, a, a published essay on, on the national leader actually interferes in the German political discourse in the Third Reich from the grave, so to speak, after he dies. Uh, one of the newspapers in Hamburg, uh, publishes, uh, an, uh, an essay, uh, by Atatürk on the national leader. And uh, here he actually contradicts what the Nazis try to make out of him, uh, and he uh, talks about the national, uh, the new leader who needs to work for peace, who needs to build alliances, uh, and that peace is more important than anything else uh, in serving uh, one's own people. So um, as long as Atatürk is alive, the Nazis have no real chance of a, a deep alliance with Turkey. There is, of course, economic um, uh, interdependency and uh, economic treaties. And uh, during World War II, these economic connections become quite important uh, for Nazi Germany. Um, some uh, some. Decisive uh, raw materials are imported from Turkey, just as uh, and similar as from uh, Franco-Spain. And um, beyond that, not much materializes. Um, Ataturk's successor, Ismet İnönü, um, is reluctant, even at times when much of the military and many of the politicians in Ankara actually would favor an alliance with the Nazis. İnönü holds them back and uh, achieves this kind of in-between situation for Turkey until the end of the war. One reason is, of course, that Turkey is still rebuilding itself after really a, a long decade of warfare and um, has other things than ter- territorial expansion in its, uh, on its mind. But when um, the Nazis attack the Soviet Union, there is uh, a, a strong pro-Nazi sentiment and, um, as long as Hitler is winning, um, there always seems to be a chance that at some point Turkey would commit itself to the Nazi side and enter on the Nazi side, uh, in, in the war. And there's actually, there are actually some instances where the, the uh, Turkish Republic is supporting the Nazis through shipment of raw materials, through rearranging, uh, troops, uh, at the uh, Russian, at the Soviet border, um, but it never amounts to much more. Um, The feeling of of being um, a former ally of of the Germans and uh, being close to the Germans still exists throughout the war, but the Nazis, of course, are a very difficult partner, even for a semi-friendly or semi-neutral country. And the Nazis also threaten the Turks, and uh, even if they don't get them to be their allies, uh, it's very important for the Nazis that at least Turkey remains neutral throughout the war. So um, uh, here, uh, Nazi discourses, dreams, imagination, uh, imaginations meet the harsh reality of the war and a very reluctant Turkey, actually. But still, um, all these instances put together where uh, Turkey actually supports the German war effort, um, they make Turkey seem very similar to uh, Spain as this uh, kind of axis neutral, who in the end... Uh, is still more work, working more with the axis uh, than with the other side
0: okay um Stefan can you talk
1: a little bit about your current research projects and uh what are you working on now well um in the meantime I wrote a book about um, Germany and the armenians uh, Germany and the armenian genocide which came out recently and um one of the things I want to follow up on is uh, now one of the Ottoman leaders during World War One, Enver Pasha, who is a very interesting figure, um, and I would very much like to write a biography on him. He's a very, very interesting and fascinating picture and largely forgotten in the Western world. The last... Uh, connecting back to uh, this topic now uh, the last biography of enver pasha was actually published by the german army during uh, world war 2 the last one oh. in a western <laughs> language that is
0: yeah. oh wow that that's fascinating well, wh- why was why why do you think that uh, that's that's the case
1: well uh, they were fascinated with the turks and they did know of enver pasha as well already from world war 1 And Enver Pasha later on, after World War I, um, after residing in Germany for a while, went to Central Asia to fight uh, against the Bolsheviks with uh, the Muslim populations there, kind of a jihadi resistance to Bolshevik uh, control in Central Asia. And when uh, the German army uh, thinks, at least thinks, it's coming close to the same areas in which Enver Pasha's biography played out its last chapter, it kind of thought for some strange reason that this would be relevant to German soldiers, even though already the title says struggle and death in Turkestan. So Enver Pasha was unsuccessful and so were the Nazis of course as well.
0: Yeah, there there is an interesting uh, uh, mention in your book several times that, that uh, Turkish uh, expansion into Central Asia is sort of referred to as, as another Napoleon, but they sort of forget that Napoleon ends up taking Moscow, but fails. And, (laughs) you know, there is this sort of idea of, oh, wow, like that their failure is an option here. And and if they wanted to see, wanted to see failure as a possibility, they would have. But they were so distorted and so confused and so deranged that it was just not there.
1: Yeah, I think that these are very good concluding remarks, aren't they? (laughs) Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you Stefan. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.